Well, as you can guess, we're still in Job. Uh, Job 22 through 24. I wrote down a question here. Have you ever been in a conversation that keeps droning on? And don't look at your spouse because that's always awkward when you do that. Um, It's easy to get that feeling or to feel that way when you're... um, reading through Job. You start out in Job chapter one and you get so much information and background and then you start diving into the friend's conversation and I don't know about you, but as we're embarking on round three of the conversation between Job and his supposed friends, I find my emotions starting to to wane. I start wondering why are we walking through another round of this, yet the, the length of this dialogue is for a reason. One of those reasons is that we see the utter failure and lack of reason or compassion that comes from a prosperity or retribution philosophy. One, it lets us know, or two, it lets us know that the world doesn't have an answer to this, that they can't solve this problem. They're going to keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. Uh, The length actually drives us to the right conclusion. We need to see something else. And so we've watched evidence pile up, presented against how the friends think and their philosophy. But instead of seeing truth, we've watched them become more entrenched in the lie. We learn from that. We recognize that people don't want to see truth, that they prefer to stick to their philosophy. They prefer to stick to what they're comfortable with, what they know, how they've built something. And so we've watched evidence pile up, and yet they will not see it. They protect their view at all costs. They protect their view no matter how illogical it is and irregardless of how much damage it will cause in Job or in general to all humanity. Because as we're going to see this morning, Eliphaz has changed quite a bit from his first speech. He always has a sense of uh, dignity about him. His first speech was more dignified than the other two, and he maintains that. But what you see here in this third speech is a shift from him because in the first speech, he told Job, you're pretty pious. You're pretty righteous. I think you've missed the sin and you need to find that sin and repent of it. By round three, he's completely convinced that Job is the vilest of sinners and accuses him of all sorts of public sins. He says, you've done a lot of these things that anyone could see, even though And this is what's interesting. He knows otherwise. He's a friend of Job. He's seen his life. He's not seen anything, but decides to now accuse him without any cause. And see, he's struck with this need. As the evidence is piled up against his worldview, he now feels the need to prove that Job is wicked. Otherwise, his whole philosophy falls apart. But instead of questioning his philosophy... He now just attacks Job in an unsubstantiated way. So we look now at what Eliphaz says. And again, as this last speech is unfold, you heard the first portion, which is a bunch of rhetorical question that shows he views God or shows how he views God and how he views God's connection to humanity, which is a critical part of what Eliphaz says. Uh, He is going to view God as being disconnected or dispersonal, not a personal God. He's a far off God that really doesn't care what we do, but instead just rewards us or punishes us for what we do. He's going to follow that 
statement by a flat-out specific accusation of sin with zero basis. And then he's going to end with a warning about associating with the wicked and then his classic call to repent. We're going to begin with those questions. We've read them. I'm going to read them again. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Can a man be profitable unto God as he that is wise may be profitable unto himself? In other words, is it of any value to God that you are righteous or wise or live correctly? He's acknowledging that it's valuable to you to live wisely, but he's questioning the idea that it matters to God at all. Uh, Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that thou are righteous? Or is it gain to him that thou makest thy ways perfect? Is it of an advantage to God? Does it bring God glory for you to live your life correctly? And the point is, and Eliphaz is making this, that it doesn't matter to God how you live your life. He's just going to do to you according to what you do. And notice what everything's fixated on. It's on humanity, not on God. Will he reprove thee for fear of thee? Will he enter with thee into judgment? And this is what Eliphaz is saying, and I've kind of said it multiple times for a reason. This is the, the kind of sum of what he's saying as a close. He works to depersonalize God and show that God is not affected by our wickedness or righteousness. Basically, God is dispassionately consistent. So if you do wrong, you are punished. If you do right, you are rewarded. He says that what we do has no bearing on God at all. But here's an interesting thought, and and Ash, Christopher Ash notes this. He says, in some strange, deep, and wonderful way, though, the glory of God is dependent upon Job's piety. I want to rewind us to chapter 1. What is one of the things we talked about in chapter 1? Why did God choose Job to answer Satan? What about my servant Job? And Satan accuses God and says, they only serve you because they get things. They only serve you, and he preaches the same sermon that Eliphaz is preaching. They do good, they get good. So that's why they serve you. And God says, no, that's not why they serve me. Job will prove my point. And in a very unique way, Job's whole life, this whole experience that he's walking through, disproves Eliphaz. But Eliphaz is trying to zero in on this idea that God is dispersonal. He's not connected. He is just up there and he's doing whatever he wants, but he does do it consistently. He's not saying that God is like a Greek God or like some pagan God that that responds in the way that we respond. Instead, he says he's completely disconnected from us. The God that Eliphaz describes, and this is fascinating, I read from a commentator, looks more like Allah than he does Yahweh. He looks more like a distant God that's there just to punish, and then we do what we do, and God responds accordingly. And so his point is exactly what Satan was trying to say. Job served God for God and not for what or who God is. That we serve God only for what we can get, not because he is the ruler of the universe, the almighty, that he is God. And so Eliphaz is fighting to tell him, we only serve God for what we get. And that's what verse 4 closes, setting up his point. Are you suffering because you're pious? That's impossible in my worldview. If you are righteous, you would be rewarded. You are suffering, so you must be wicked. And based on how much you're suffering, you must be the worst of the wicked. Thus, verse 5, is not thy wickedness great? That wasn't a question for Job to say, no, 
It was a question that he's saying, your wickedness is great and thine iniquities infinite. You are sinning all the way up into eternity. You are the worst sinner ever. He questions Job about that. He, he basically throws that in his face. You're the worst. And then he follows with this unbased, specific accusations. I don't know about you. Oftentimes, I'm sure all of us, depending if you have some age on you, you've been accused of being the worst person in the world. But usually people don't follow with very specific false accusations. Eliphaz does. He says, for thou hast taken a pledge from thy brother for naught. And strip the naked of their clothing. Thou hast not given water to the weary to drink. And thou hast withholden bread from the hungry. But as for the mighty man, he had the earth. And the honorable man dwelt in it. Thou hast sent widows away empty. And the arms of the fatherless have been broken. He says, you strong armed away from your brother and fellow citizens the things they need for daily life. You're stripping them of any chance. You neglected to share the basics of life with people in your midst or traveling through, and you've abused your power as a man of authority. You've attacked and bullied the weakest and most vulnerable of society. That's a pretty bombastic accusation from Eliphaz. He goes on and says, and Job, he says, you've paid for it. Verse 10, therefore snares are round about thee, and sudden fear troubleth thee, or darkness that thou cannot see, and abundance of waters cover thee. He's saying it makes sense based on who you are that all this stuff has happened, all the wickedness, and it's unsubstantiated, that you face the suffering you do. You've done the worst, and so you're suffering the worst. You face the terror of hell or in utter darkness and overwhelmed by chaos and disorder. That means that's the idea of waters coming over your head is the idea that you're just inundated in chaos and disorder. Your life is a wreck. It's destroyed. That makes sense considering all that you have done. Eliphaz continues now saying, Is not God in the height of heaven? And behold, the height of the stars, how high they are. And thou sayest, how doth God know? Can he judge through the dark cloud? Thick clouds are a covering to him that he seeth not, and he walketh in the circuit of heaven. And Eliphaz now starts talking about God, and he's accusing Job of a false view of God. He says to Job, you think God is far above seeing everything but not doing anything. He's accusing him of of seeing a distant God that isn't connected. He's actually saying Job believes his whole rhetoric. And he's saying he's so far up there, Job, you think that God is so far away from you that he won't see what you're doing. Which, by the way, is an interesting accusation considering Job believes and has affirmed through multiple chapters his view of a personal God, one who is intricately connected to us. And so what you have is Eliphaz telling Job, you think God won't act. He's, he's saying, if you look at Psalm 73, it's like the psalmist is saying there, oh, they do whatever they want. God doesn't do anything. And he's saying to Job, you think God isn't going to act, but God does act. Again, but he's ignored everything Job has said because Job has consistently pleaded for personal interaction with God. But Eliphaz is not going to let facts get in the way of a good argument. So he continues. Hast thou marked the old way which wicked men have trodden, which were cut down out of time, whose foundation was overflown with a flood, which said unto God, Depart from us, and what can the Almighty do for them? Yet he filled their houses with good things, but the counsel of the wicked is far from me. The righteous see it and are glad, and the innocent laugh them to scorn, whereas our substance is not cut down. That's nice, right? We're okay. 
but the fire or the remnant of them, the fire consumeth. And so Eliphaz starts off and says, you're like one of those people that tell God to get away from you. And I'm like one of the righteous people that laugh at people who get punished for their wickedness. He says, haven't you seen the outcome of the wicked and the path they walk down? They get cut down and wiped out. They're the ones who want God far from them and think God can't do anything for them, even though God has given them everything. And then in 18b, Eliphaz gets to that personal look. I've never been in the company of the wicked. I would never do this. He's affirming how right he is. We, the righteous, look at their calamity and laugh at them, which I think explains a little bit the heartless nature of the friends towards Job. Well, we are righteous and we, we laugh at the punishment of the wicked. And so they are distant from Job and have their back turned against him. We are preserved, he says, yet the wicked, you, Job, lose everything. He then returns to his call to repent and get back in the good graces. So the rest of the chapter now, he tells Job, but you can repent. And I put and underline this and get things from God. The ugly prosperity theology rears its head. The one Satan said is the only reason humanity loves and worships God. And what you know is this. If in chapter one, Satan had come into the council of God and God had said to him, have you seen Eliphaz? Eliphaz would have crumbled because Eliphaz serves God for what he gets from God. It's a prosperity theology. Or if he would have said Bildad or Zophar, or even Elihu, all of them would have crumbled. God said Job for a reason. He is all-knowing, and he knew how Job would respond. And so Job was uniquely set up to be the answer, to be the glory of God, to point to why someone serves. So he goes on, he says, Acquaint now thyself with him and be at peace. Thereby good shall come unto thee. And how foolish of a statement. Job has been begging to be connected to God. And Eliphaz tells Job now, hey, get close to God. Now, this is the same guy that said God doesn't care if you're righteous or wicked. So he's contradicting himself through his whole speech. He goes on, receive, I pray thee, the law from his mouth and lay up his words in thine heart. If thou return to the Almighty, thou shalt be built up. Thou shalt put away iniquity far from thy tabernacles. Thou shalt lay, and then shalt thou lay up gold as dust. And that wording is a little awkward there. It's really, you're going to put your gold in the dust and then, and the gold of Ophir as the stones of the brooks. And that last phrase is really, you're going to take your money, your ill-gotten gain, and you're going to put it in the dirt, as in you're going to give it up. And you're going to take the best of your gold, gold of Ophir, and you're going to put it in the stream which is where you would have taken it out of, you're going to put it back, you're going to put it away. You're not relying on that. He's saying, agree with God and be at peace, and God's goodness will come over you. Accept his law, which, by the way, is a true statement, which is something we should do, and treasure his words. These are things that are truth. This is a call that is not wrong from Eliphaz. This is a correct statement, but it is in the wrong context. If you do so, you will be built up. Now he gets into his prosperity, but you need to get the sin out of your house and you need to let go of your ill-gotten gains. So that's where 24 comes in. Set the gold in the dust, put the best gold back in the stream, basically where it comes from. 25, yea, the almighty shall be thy defense and thou shalt have plenty of silver. He gets right back to material possessions, right? Give up your gold and you'll get loaded down with silver for then thou shalt have thy delight in the almighty and that's true, we should delight in God and shalt lift up thy face unto God. And then 27, the prosperity comes out. Thou shalt make thy prayer unto him and he shall hear thee. 
and thou shalt pay thy vows. In other words, hear you is not listen to you. It's hear you as an act for you. If you'll take care of this and be right with God, when you pray to God, God will give you what you pray for. You ever heard that before? Well, if you have enough faith, if you have enough faith and you pray, you'll get it. And if you don't get it, you must not have enough faith. Prosperity gospel. That's what Eliphaz is preaching. Get right with God. Be right. Give up your gold. Set it aside. And then God will give you everything. He will open the treasure troves of heaven. And it's not just prosperity gospel preachers that preach that. There's a lot of people preach the same thing. Well, give to God and then God will unzip his bag of money and it'll rain down on you. And so many people dive into that. And why do they give to God? To get from God. You give your portion, God will give his portion to you. All of it very manipulative. Just as a side note, we give as an act of worship. When you're not giving to God, the solution is not to give It's to examine your heart because something's wrong with your heart and your worship. Because when you get your heart and your worship right, the giving will come automatically. It'll be hilarious. It'll be generous. But see here, he says, give your life to God so that you'll get. You can then pray to the genie in the Bible and he will do what you want. Then he goes on, thou shalt also decree a thing and it shall be established unto thee and the light shall shine upon thy ways. When men are cast down, then thou shalt say there is lifting up and he shall save the humble person. You'll ask for things and you'll get it. You'll pray for people and they'll get what you ask. You will become this somewhat wizard that can take care of things for people. He shall deliver the island of the innocent and it is delivered by the pureness of thine hands. Eliphaz is saying, and as I mentioned, that God will be your defender and supplier of wealth. You'll be restored to a right relationship with God. Beyond that, you'll pray to God and he'll respond to you. You will decide and God will make it happen. Have you ever heard this? He will be smiling down on you. God will smile on you and you will get everything you want as long as you have enough righteousness or enough faith or enough money you sent to the TV evangelist, whatever it may be. It all ties into that same prosperity gospel mentality. And even more, you will become a blessing to others. You will return to being the patriarchal mediator as before, which ironically he has to do for Eliphaz and the friends at the end of Job. He says, Job needs to pray for you because I don't want to listen to you. So interestingly enough, the false promise they get is fulfilled in their own life. Eliphaz had quite a bit to share because he wanted to make his point clear, which drives us now to examine what he meant. Eliphaz, after hearing Job cry for his mediator, after expressing confidence that he had a living redeemer, after he shared the truth about the wicked, the righteous, and suffering on earth, still feels compelled to correct Job and set him straight. He begins by saying, and I I said this earlier, I'm saying it again. He says to Job, God is impersonal. God sees all and consistently handles it, but God is not affected by us, nor does he have a personal relationship with us. And of course, in the context and in the undertone, Eliphaz is telling Job, now I do know how God handles things. We do nothing to advance his name or his glory, which is not true. 
We know from Job 1 that Job is called to advance his name in glory. And we know from the New Testament and through scripture that we do advance God's name and glory. It is our calling. We're called to be ambassadors. We're called to advance his name. But he's saying that's not what we do. God is not concerned or vested in our repentance, nor is he working in our lives. That's Eliphaz's preaching. God just reacts to what we do and gives us just recompense for those actions. And that's why I said, if if you understand some of the false religion that is out there and you look at Islam and you actually go past Muhammad to Allah uh, and look at their false God of Allah, Allah is this distant, impersonal God who just responds to whatever they do. You don't entreat him. He's not moved by you. He doesn't care about you really. He just wants you to do what he tells you and you do that. And then he gives you what you worked for. And I want you to see something. One, there's nothing new under the sun, really. In Job's day, Eliphaz is writing a new religion right here. And we've linked it oftentimes to the prosperity theology, which is woven into the fabric. But you can also see the heart and soul of other religions and distant gods. I say that because I want you to realize how dangerous it is to view God as impersonal. That God is not involved in our lives or cares about our lives. He has to say that because then he can clearly say this to Job. You're wicked. You have to be wicked. That has to be a fact for his theology to be held up. Since God is not moved by our actions, God will only give us what our actions deserve. And since he is consistent, there could be no other explanation for Job's suffering than Job's wickedness. That's the conclusion he comes to. I need a distant God, an impersonal God. I need a prosperity theology so that I can live my life and I can explain why in the world what I know to be a righteous man and a holy person who's worked extremely hard in the sense of serving God and doing what he should do. He says, I have to explain this. I can only explain this by saying you're wicked. That way I can keep my theology. Now he goes on. He says to Job, wickedness is dangerous, which is true. Except for his application is wicked actions are always judged here on earth. Wicked equals guaranteed death. And therefore, it's really dangerous to be wicked in this life. Yet thankfully, in Eliphaz's logic, there's still an escape hatch. You can still get out of the sinking ship, Job, he says, because repentance is rewarding. Or to put it another way, you repent for the reward. Prosperity is woven into the fabric of Eliphaz's conclusion Though there is truth to how repentance works to restore a right relationship, it does. That reliance upon God is rewarding, it is. The problem is, Job has no sin that is unconfessed or unatoned for. He's not ever said he's sinless, by the way. He is blameless in the sense that he he has confessed his sin and he sacrificed for that sin. He's hiding nothing. So he cannot repent of what has not been done that would be a complete lie and demonstrate manipulation instead of integrity. But based on Eliphaz's theology, the level of Job's suffering must correlate directly to the level of his sin. And so Job is the worst. But different than Zophar, there's a glimmer of hope. Zophar's last speech was, you're doomed, and that's it. He has a repeated call for repentance. But it's a call given based on unsubstantiated accusations and an unbiblical theology. Eliphaz even neglects to fulfill or apply his own conclusion. Hartley notes this, that the righteous can intercede for the guilty. That's what he said. 
He instead condemns Job when he needs or should be pleading for Job's restoration. So even his advice, even his conclusion about the righteous, hey, if you're right with God, then you can pray for someone who's doomed and actually effectively change. Yet then you say to Eliphaz, why aren't you praying for Job? Why aren't you on your knees for Job? Because he doesn't really believe his own theology. Eliphaz has hardened himself to condemn Job so that he can protect his philosophy and theology. And what a dangerous place to be. One, we've seen the friends repeat over and over to the point where we say this conversation is droning on. But every time we're getting a glimpse more of how entrenched the world will be in its worldview and how dangerous that worldview is. So though we see truth nestled in the words of Eliphaz, his overarching point, and much of what is implied and said, reeks of Satan's lies. It's what Satan said to God at the beginning. People serve you for what they get. They only serve you for what they get. That's all it is. And what Eliphaz says reeks of Satan. It makes God disinterested and uninvolved in our lives, prompting Job to respond. And so now we look at what Job says. Uh, Last week was a treat. It was only one chapter. He has this typical two-chapter response here. Uh, He kind of ignores his friend, though. He's not answering directly to Eliphaz's uh, comments, but he expresses his longing for the righteous to be vindicated and the wicked to be punished. Ultimately, we're not vindictively wanting the wicked to be punished, but as believers, sin is a a offense against God and ultimately sin must be paid for because we serve a holy God. And so as believers, we do want sin paid for. Uh, He's longing for fellowship with God. He wants to, as MacArthur notes, experience God's love and goodness and hear from him the meaning of all his suffering. And so we begin in 23, then Job answered and said, even today is my complaint bitter. My stroke is heavier than my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat I would order my cause before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know the words which he would answer me and understand what he would say unto me. Will he plead against me with his great power? No, but he would put strength in me. There the righteous might dispute with him. So should I be delivered forever from my judge. And here Job expresses his desire to speak with God, to be heard, to meet God. In other words, God is not impersonal, but he is personal. He begins by sharing the pain still pressing down on his life. And I want you to understand that you can have faith in the midst of suffering and still feel this intense pressure that pushes down on you. And Job is feeling that he's expressing that he is pushed down. He is not quote unquote found relief, but he now expresses in verse three, he makes clear that he longs or aches to be in God's presence and talk. Though interestingly enough, when God does show up and God does speak, Job decides that he should be quiet. And what that tells you is the end of Job reveals where Job's heart has been all along. It's not that he wanted to run his mouth. It's that he wanted to be with God. And so you see the integrity of the man vested even later on in his silence when he just listens to God when God does show up. He wants to hear God's response. And then in verse 6, he, he wonders if God will abuse him. Will God, if he comes, will he take his majesty, his power, and crush me? However, he quickly affirms that God will not do that. And I put something and I highlighted it. He trusts in the character of God. And that's critical. Job has been, and this is something you want to see through this. The friends have not grown at all. 
The friends stick with their worldview. They don't move. They get entrenched in a lie. And what you've watched Job do from three all the way on is you start seeing Job growing. See, he starts wanting a mediator. Then he he knows his redeemer lives. And here, as he looks to be vindicated, you see expressions of trust in God's character. He believes that God is just, even while he's weighed down or struggling to see it. So in the midst of doubt, he's affirming who God is. And by the way, whenever we are crushed and oppressed, the only relief, the only look that has no failure in it is God and his character and who he is. We rely on him. Uh, We trust in him for salvation. He is the one who holds us. We don't hold ourselves. Job then speaks of searching for God. Behold, I go forward, but he's not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. In other words, I trust his character, but boy, I can't find him. On the left hand, where he, where he doth work, but I can't behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand, that I cannot see him. I've looked everywhere, he says, for the omnipresent God and can't seem to connect. The reality is we don't control God, and Job realizes that. Yet Job still confidently affirms, he says, but he knoweth the way that I take. He knows me. He sees me. Eliphaz has told Job, you think God doesn't care. And Job says, no, I actually have said that he sees me directly. I know that when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. And Job is affirming this. I know God sees me correctly. I don't have to trust in my friend's perception and unsubstantiated accusations, but instead I know that God sees me and I know he sees my character for what it is. He sees my heart and he's sure now a final verdict. God has followed, Job has followed God's ways. He's valued his principles above all else and Job is confident that God knows all of that. And he then turns to look at the awesomeness of God And this is an important take to understand or recognize that God is not controlled by humanity. I think too often we worship a God that we control, which is a false God. Um, I don't watch The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe or all those movies, but a lot of these English writers quote it. Uh, They love quoting C.S. Lewis. And they talk about Aslan and they said he's not tame. And I think it's fascinating to think about that a little bit. God is not a tame, domesticated animal that you make do tricks for you. He's a loving king, but if you want to put it in context, he's wild. He's not your pet. He goes on, but he is in one mind. And that's actually a a beautiful translation of the Hebrew, which actually says he's one mind. He's unchangeable. Some of your Bibles might say unchangeable, and that's exactly what it's saying. He's of one mind. He's not double-minded at all. And who can turn him? And what, is his, and what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. For he performeth a thing that is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. He says, he's doing what should be done, which is fascinating when you think about Job and his suffering and his agony and pain at this moment. Therefore, am I troubled at his presence when I consider I'm afraid of him? And if you want to note in your mind where that's not a tame lion doing tricks for his owner, It's saying this is the king of kings and he doesn't do tricks for anyone. Thus, when you walk into his presence, you should feel a sense of awe and have a sense of trembling. When I consider I'm afraid of him, for God maketh my heart soft and the almighty troubleth me. 
Because I was not cut off before the darkness, neither hath he covered the darkness from my face. He says, God is not fickle. He is unchangeable. And so Job rightly realizes he's not going to move God. God is not, as I said, a tame lion on display for us to watch and manipulate. Instead, he's the king. And so he does what he's intended to do. He does what he wants to do. And that's not a scary thing. That's actually a wonderful thing because I want God to do what God wants to do. I don't trust my life or anything about my life in my own hands, let alone anyone else's hands. But I can trust that God will do right and justice. Go all the way back to what he said. He trusts in God's character. He recognizes he doesn't control God, but he still is trusting in God. So Job can know that God will act toward him in the way that has been determined by God. Job wants to be in God's presence, but rightfully understands the magnitude of God and trembles accordingly. Yet as verse 17 states, he is still confident and hopeful in how God will ultimately deal with him. Job now turns to his desire for justice uh, to look now at the punishment of the wicked. This is uh, chapter 24. So he's been looking at his vindication. Now he looks at the other side of sin. Why, seeing times are not hidden from the Almighty, do they that know him not see his days? And this is a question he's asking. Nothing's hidden from God, yet Job is wondering, when will God's children, the righteous, see him act or judge the wicked? And then he goes on to describe the wicked. The wicked have done terrible things. Some remove the landmarks. They violently take away flocks and feed thereof. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They turn the needy out of the way. The poor of the earth hide themselves together. Look, the wicked are wicked. Land is stolen. Animals are commandeered or pledged away. They force the poor out of their way of success to the extent that the poor hide from their destructive passions. What is the result? Human pain and oppression. Behold, as wild donkeys in the desert go they forth to their work, rising betimes for a prey, the wilderness yieldeth food for them and for their children. In other words, they have no cultivated food. They're just scavenging out there because the wicked oppress so much. They reap everyone his corn in the field and they gather the vintage of the wicked. In other words, they're abused by the wicked. They serve the wicked. They make the wicked rich. They cause the naked to, go, to lodge without clothing that they have no covering in the cold. In other words, they take away their outer garment with which they could be warmed. They are wet with the showers of the mountains and embrace the rock for want of a shelter. And Job is showing here that the wicked people are oppressing and the result are people who are afflicted. And I want you to notice something He goes from the deed to the victim, and it shows a little bit about who Job is. He's, again, a personal person. He cares for people, and that's reflective in how he answers. Uh, These are the results towards the victims of wickedness, but that is not all. He says, they pluck the fatherless from the breast and take a pledge of the poor. If that wasn't enough, after taking everything from the destitute, they come along to enslave their children. They cause him to go naked without clothing, and they take away the, sh- the sheaf from the hungry, which make oil within their walls and tread their wine process and suffer thirst. Men groan from out of the city, and the soul of the wounded crieth out, yet God layeth not folly to them. Again, he says, these wicked people left unjudged have stolen the simplest of things from their victims, the remnant of clothes, the little they had to eat. The victims are forced to provide for the wicked, but get to sample none of the merchandise. You press the wine, but you're still walking away thirsty. You get nothing. The press cry out, but still no action on God's part. Job is, in all honesty, wrestling again with God's timing. 
He doesn't doubt God's movement. And, and I think if we did a cross section and looked out amongst God's people, we oftentimes wrestle with God's timing. Why are we walking through what we're walking through? We have the simplest of oppressions, and I'm not saying I'm making them trivial, but we are, at least I know, I'm barking about 490 a gallon, right? We feel and we wonder, when is God going to move? When is he going to remove this leadership and give us something else to make this all better? And we're feeling barely anything compared to what others have felt. So we all look and we wonder, when will God act? We're very impatient there. The oppressed cry out, no action, he says. Then Job turns now to describe their, the methods of the wicked and their life. Now he's getting into how they act. They are those that rebel against the light. They know not the ways thereof, nor abide in the paths thereof. In other words, they know nothing about righteousness, nor do they care about it. The murderer rising with the light killeth the poor and needy, and in the night is as a thief. The eye also of the adulterer waiteth for the twilight, saying, No eye shall see me, and disguiseth his face. In other words, they're waiting to kill people. They're waiting to steal from them. They're waiting to be immoral. In the dark, they dig through houses which they had marked for themselves in the daytime. Now it goes back to the thief. They're coming out at night. They've, they've, they've done the scoping and seen, and now at night they come out. They know not the light. They don't know righteousness. They don't know rightness. For the morning is to them even as the shadow of death. If one know them, they are in the terrors of the shadow of death. What he's saying is the wicked people are the children of darkness and they, don't, and, and they hate the light. They murder and destroy, looking for and planning immorality. They look for ways to steal and are creatures of darkness. They're uncomfortable in light. And let's think about that for a second. Is the world uncomfortable with the church? When it's not uncomfortable we look too much like the world because the world is darkness and they should be uncomfortable with light. Job now moves to quote the friends, 18 uh, through 20. He's, he's actually saying, this is what you say um, about impending doom. You say, basically, he is swift as the waters. Their, their portion is cursed in the earth. He beholdeth not the way of the vineyards. Drought and heat consume the snow waters. So doth the grave those which have sinned. The womb shall forget him. The worm shall feed sweetly on him. He shall no more, more, no more remembered, and wickedness shall be broken as a tree. See, he says to the friends, you've said, I'm saying the wicked are wicked. I agree with you on that. I agree they've done horrible things. I'm just saying that you keep saying they're always punished. The friends have said the wicked's judgment comes quickly. They're cursed on earth. Their endeavors fail. They're consumed like water before a drought. Their own mother will forget them. The wicked, they say, are broken now. And that's something Job has pointed out is not the case. See, they have to have the wicked punished now because that's how they can make Job wicked. If wickedness is always punished, then Job is being punished. Therefore, Job must be wicked. He now turns to remind them of the cruelty of the wicked and come to his conclusion. He, he evil entreateth the barren that beareth not and doeth not good to the widow. In other words, he takes the most vulnerable person in society, the childish woman, the, the, the woman who has no children, has no one to take care of her in her older age in that society, in that culture. And then he says, they attack the widow as well. Ash notes this, they treat this vulnerable, defenseless woman with heartless cruelty. And that's what Job is trying to bring to bear. They take, quote unquote, the person who is the most exposed in society, in their society, the person who has no child to take care of them in old age, the person who has lost her husband, 
And understanding their culture, this leaves this woman destitute. And he says, the wicked come after that person. The fact is the wicked will be judged, but not necessarily now or even on earth. So Job kind of states this. He draweth also the mighty with his power. He riseth up and no man is sure of life. It says, it seems that God has allowed their life and influence to continue. They're lifted up in pride, but will ultimately despair. And Job says something here. He's telling them, they don't necessarily face punishment now, but they will be eternally punished. They are not eternally secure. It's not like everything's fine for them forever. And then he closes the chapter. Though it be given him to be in safety, whereon he resteth, yet his eyes are upon their ways. God is watching them. They are exalted for a little while, but are gone and brought low. They are taken out of the way as all other and cut off as the tops of the ears of corn. And so Job, in refuting their idea that wickedness is punished now, now says, but I just want to make sure you guys understand something. I know God will act. I know God will punish. I'm just saying we don't know his timing. We can't manipulate God on that. And he goes on, if it be not so, who shall make me a liar and make my speech nothing worth? In other words, he's putting all his confidence in Job's action. Job knows they may look safe and rested, but God is watching and aware of the wicked. They may be exalted, but eternally they will pay the price of sin. And then he closes in 25, confident that sin, wickedness, will not go unpunished. But note, Job has highlighted that it does not necessarily happen here and now when we would expect it to occur. See, Job has stated that he he wants to see God's kingdom come. He wants to see justice reigning on earth as it is in heaven. And so he states that in his response to Eliphaz. Uh, But let's look now a little more at what he meant. Um, Though Job has agreed with them through parts of their retribution theology, saying, hey, there there is a payment for sin and there is punishment that takes place, he cannot concur with their timing or application. They come to different conclusions about God, and that's a real critical part of this argument And they come to different conclusions on how the world functions. Eliphaz thought of God as impersonal. He is distant and he just responds to what we do. In other words, if you think about this, an impersonal God is just reacting to the things you do. And so the center of the universe is still you, which mankind, humanity loves. We want to be the center of everything. Job says, no, that's not accurate. God is personal and trustworthy. He trusts in God's character, verse uh, chapter 23, 6, even more than himself. He trusts in God's involvement, and thus he's confident in future vindication. And he trusts in God's ways, and he's confident that he's followed him. Job knows that God's glory and name are proclaimed by his actions. He knows it matters to live for God. He recognizes that God is personal. God is connected, and then On top of that, which is critical to refute a lot of the false religion that the Greeks and the Romans, because they had very involved gods, uh, but they were all immoral and worldly. He says God is to be trusted. Now, Job also sees that wickedness is dangerous, but he's come to the accurate view of it. Wickedness is dangerous, but it's not always immediately seen as being dangerous on earth. The wicked may live their life in ease and never understand the danger of their life until they face eternity. 
Now, that brings a really clear point. It means the wicked can prosper on earth, which logically means that the righteous can suffer. So it ruins their point, right? It just destroys their, their whole premise. But Job affirms confidently that God's judgment will come, and Job longs for that to happen. He does struggle with the timing, but let's be honest, so do we. You ever face some difficulty and you think to God, when are you going to remove this? When will you act? Why aren't you acting now? You see all the wicked people out there? Why am I facing this? And I want you to see something, not to excuse our questioning, but for us to recognize that Job, the one that God put forth as the answer for his glory, as a response to Satan, also struggled with God's timing. It seems it is a struggle of humanity and hopefully helps us to rest back in trusting his character and trusting his timing. See, the reality is God, uh, Job truly desires God's will to be done here on earth. He desires to see God's kingdom come. We live in a broken world. What do we pray? I think it's in Matthew. We pray that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven, which implies that everything's not right here on earth. And Job realizes that and longs for the rightness of heaven to be seen on earth. That is a good longing for a believer. I put here, do we have the same desire, though, as Job? Do we long for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Do we want God's will accomplished here on earth? Is that what we long to see And if we examine our lives, can we confidently say that we walk in God's way? Because that's what Job said. Do our actions proclaim God's glory and his name? Eliphaz gave his third and final speech, and he came to some conclusions. He sees Job as wicked and accuses him of specific crimes for which he has no evidence, which is a drastic change from speech one. Eliphaz still promotes his prosperity gospel, a call to serve and repent so that Job can get what he wants. Truth is woven into the fabric of what is said, but the point of what he says is completely off base and most drastically off is his view that God is impersonal and disconnected from his creation. To say that God only responds to us for our actions and that's it, God is basically stuck giving us the sentence that we have acted upon acted upon. He says, God is not affected by our behavior in his view. God only consistently gives us what we deserve, which if he understood the true vileness of humanity, he would never think God gave us what we deserve. I just want you to see how his theology is eroded on the other end of the spectrum. Because Eliphaz, if you got what you deserved, well, you deserve hell. And so do all of us. And so we never get what we deserve because of God's grace and his mercy. You see how he's missed all of God's grace and all of God's mercy, and he's fixated on basically making himself into a mini God that then acts and is rewarded by the big God for what he's done. He sees the suffering as wicked and the prosperous as righteous. Everything is weighed on the scales of the temporal and material. Ultimately, Eliphaz preaches the gospel of Satan. And here's the sad truth, though. It's the gospel that most Christians love to hear and follow. Because we love to hear about how God is going to pour the, the and I always, every time a preacher preached about opening the floodgates of heaven, I always think of a, a zipper on the bottom of a bag and, and gold coins are falling down. I'm like, this is ridiculous. And it is ridiculous. 
That's not the context of that passage, and, it, and it's a wrong way to look at that. It's a completely manipulative. It's, it's Eliphaz. It's how he would see getting from God. Job, as per the usual, pushes back on the lie. No, he says, God is personal and intimately connected to his creation. God relates personally with his people, and Job craves that relationship. He struggles, as we all do, with the timing of God, but he rests his full confidence in who God is and that God will act justly on all accounts. Because when they say that God sees everything, it's not just saying that God is the all-seeing eye. They're saying this in confidence. God will act on every account. God misses nothing. And that's what he's affirming. Though he may not see clearly, Job trusts completely and acts accordingly. And there's a question for us. It's hard to see sometimes. It's hard to feel a certain way. It's hard to understand what this world is sending our way. That's what Job has expressed and even weaves that into what he said now, though he's grown drastically in this conversation. But do you trust God completely and then act accordingly? Even when you can't see clearly, even when there's a fog. I put here, is that how we see God? Do we see him personally? Do we crave a right relationship with him? Do we rest confidently in who he is? Do we live according to his way? That's what Job has kind of pictured for us in these two chapters. His response to Eliphaz is, I know my Redeemer liveth. He's just affirming it in a different way. I know he's a personal God. I know he cares about me. I may not understand everything that's going on. I may be wrestling with this timing, but I trust in God's character. I put my foundation in who he is, not in what I see happening around me. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this opportunity we have to study your word, to walk through the book of Job, to see uh, the, the entrenched nature of these friends, how they have put their worldview above you. They put their worldview above knowing you, above helping one of your children. Uh, they had to see things their way to protect the bubble that they lived in. And I hope that as believers, uh, we wouldn't fall into the same trap, but instead we would see you and recognize that uh, we're not worshiping and serving you for the gains we will get from you. But instead, we worship and serve you because you are God and worthy of worship and praise. We crave a right relationship with you because nothing could be better in all the world and in all eternity. We should desire you because we're, we're your creation and you are our God. Help us as we journey through life and maybe through varying circumstances that though things may seem unclear, though things may seem difficult, though things may seem foggy or hard to explain, that we will instead still trust completely in who you are and what you've done for us and then act accordingly. Give us the courage and strength to do that. In your precious and holy name, amen. Amen.